Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that helps you protect your time to do deep work. Given all the projects I'm involved in, it's all too easy for my calendar to become a complete mess. With SavvyCal, I can set frequency limits so I only have so many meetings in a day or week. I can set preferred times to meet, and I can also toggle between multiple availability presets so I can batch similar meetings together. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM, and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Matt Johnson. Matt is the author of Microfamous and founder of Pursuing Results, a podcasting agency. Wanted to bring him on because Matt is all about building expertise and authority in order to build an audience that you can monetize later on. He started multiple successful podcasts and has a unique view about what it takes to build a business on the audience that you've built. A couple of highlights in the episode you'll hear about is how to do marketing as an introvert, staying true to who you are, and how to be influential without a huge audience. So to start out, I love asking my guests, did you ever think that you'd be an author and a podcast agency owner for a living? No, actually, I, I, I thought I'd write a book at some point. So that wasn't super hmm. surprising. The fact that I run a marketing agency was wildly probably confusing to, to my <laughs> earlier self. I am, uh, I don't know if we got a chance to really talk about this, but yeah, I'm the least likely entrepreneur ever homeschooled pastor's kid who basically spent all my free time in my teen years in a basement, pasty white, practicing a musical instrument. So yeah, I, I had no intention. I was always fascinated by, I would say like marketing, team building, leadership. I kind of read those books on the side for fun, hmm. but I had no intention of ever getting into it and doing it professionally until I was well into my thirties and I had already done some stuff in ministry. I'd done, I'd chased the dream as a musician for five years. Like I, I started a real estate team when I, right before the crash, like I did a lot of other stuff and bounced around a lot and finally stumbled into this kind of world of podcasting where I finally felt like I found a niche in the business world where I fit in. So yeah, it, it took me a long time and my younger self would be very, very confused. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have a sort of windy story, you know, to how, how we got to where we are today when it's totally fine, very okay. But can you just give like a brief kind of like timeline and walk through of like how you got to where you are today? And we can, we can dive into each one of those, but just like what are the major kind of milestones, projects, you know, career kind of things that you were working on up until now? Okay. So I'll, I'll go back to like starting the real estate team because it kind of came around full circle. Yeah. I realized I, I got out of the business in the crash and I realized later that I didn't have the emotional maturity to handle high level professional service clients at that point. I knew the parts of the business that I liked and didn't like. And I realized that I had, you know, kind of, I was drawn to the marketing and the team building kind of leadership side of like building a team. So basically when I got in and I started a real estate team, I read this particular book that showed you how to build a business model where you ran the company, but didn't actually actively work with clients. And so my only intention of getting into it was to get to that stage as quickly as possible. I couldn't make it through the stage of working with clients far enough to even get passed <laughs> into the CEO role. So years and years later, after I, you know, spent time as a musician, I was doing sales and I was traveling a lot and I decided, you know, I really need to commit to something and I want to learn marketing. So I went and I found a marketing agency and I just started working with them full time. I ended up working directly for the CEO. He brought me out to San Diego, all this stuff. 
And it kind of came full circle because the reason I got that job was because in that agency, the majority of their clients were in the real estate space. They were doing video and email marketing for some of the top agents and teams and stuff like that. So my background gave me a leg up. It led to me very quickly getting into BizDev. And the way that we decided to do BizDev was to do these Google Hangouts, right? This is when Google Hangouts was first oh. kind of hot, right? So we we're doing Google Hangouts with these influencers in the space. And because I had a background in it, I'd done it enough to where I knew kind of who the players were. I knew what questions to ask. I'd read all the, all the books and stuff like that. So I was, I kind of was able to ask really good questions and facilitate really good, essentially live podcasts. Although I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. And finally, one of them called me up one day and say, he's just like, dude, we should start a podcast together. It's like, I want to do some coaching. I know you want to maybe experiment with some info products or something. I'm like, you know, I was thinking about calling you up the next week and pitching you the same thing. So yeah, let's do it. That was good timing. That was 2015. So that podcast was called Real Estate Uncensored. And it built a really nice mainstream audience in the real estate space. It has like a million and a half downloads. It get it makes like all the top, you know, 10, 15, you know, lists of, of podcasts in that space. And so that's kind of how I jumped into the space. Now, I had no intention to be an agency owner. My intention was like to be this industry influencer connector guy. And I was a partner and ended up being a partner in two like business coaching consulting type businesses. And I was just looking to grow those businesses. And it turns out that I'm just by launching, like podcasting was a natural outgrowth of just looking for how do we grow these businesses. And so I ended up hosting two podcasts at the same time. And the interesting thing was that the smaller podcast was way easier to monetize. Hmm. And that broke my brain and sent me down the path of kind of reverse engineering. How did that happen? And why is that? Is that it was just this one or is there, or is there some universal principles that I can uncover? Uh, and it basically just sent me on the journey that led me to the, the research, the, the thinking that, that ended up being the whole micro famous book and the everything, the strategy and the system that's in it. It all just came from that essentially running a split test entirely by accident in the world of podcasting and in mm. the same industry, having one podcast that was big and one podcast that was super small and having an interest in the businesses behind both podcasts. It was my money that was on the line. And I'm like, holy cow, this one is the smaller one is way easier to monetize. What the hell is going on? And yeah, so that was uh, that's a very short skipping over all the stuff that is unrelated. That's essentially how I got to where I am to the point where I started to get asked to launch podcasts. And I realized that that was the one thing where I had 100% control and ownership to where if I did a really good job, I got 100% of the reward. So I ended up mm -hmm. getting out of all the other coaching consulting businesses and side ventures I'd gotten myself into, which I think at the time was up to four or five, got out of all that other stuff and just went all in on the agency. I love it. I want to get back to the podcasts and also, of course, to pursuing results and to Microfamous. But I'm also curious on the real estate and the, the hangouts. Like one, why do you think that that was like the winning strategy doing like Google Hangouts and like that was the way to sort of grab people's attention? And two, I'm also just curious, what were like the winning strategies for real estate agents that were cutting edge to, you know, to build a real estate business and leads and pipeline? That's a good example because it kind of feeds into part of what I found when I kind of reverse engineered all this stuff. So number one, I'll answer the first question about Google Hangouts. So I think the easy yeah. answer is it was a lower permission way of getting the same information that you'd get in a webinar. Hmm. And so Google Hangouts at that time and now podcasting today essentially lets you get 
this, you know, a lot of in-depth information that used to only be available in like teleseminars and then webinars, but webinar has all the implications that go with it. I'm going to be pitched. The, the content is going to be geared to getting me to buy something like that's just if you're savvy enough, which people in real estate are because they get bombarded all the time, you know, that's what's going on, right? If you're really savvy, you know, the webinars are designed not to let you get something you can actually go implement, but they are specifically designed to give you two or three aha moments that make you want to buy the product. It's like, okay, great. Mm. Uh, Google Hangout got around that by essentially positioning as, hey, we're sharing what this other top person is doing. It's informational only. There is no pitch like that. And just Google Hangouts, the fact that it was a new platform at the time kind of drove that point home. This is not a webinar where you will be pitched. And that's what they were used to in the market. So I think that that's what really helped us there. Now on the content so, uh, side. Yeah, go ahead. A quick point on that really quick. I was just, that's really interesting. I think that's, I wanted to point out really quick that it's the packaging and the positioning of like the Google Hangout being sort of casual, like you said, lower permission, lower commitment, doesn't have the negative connotations of a webinar. But like I said, it's essentially the same thing, right? It's it's basically it can be. that, right? Exactly. Maybe slightly um, different, but that's what was yeah. able to grab someone's attention, get them hooked in, and allow people to lower their guards, if you will. Yes, exactly. And, and better when it's done authentically that way. Absolutely. Now, right. if you show up and it's still a webinar <laughs> and, and they don't actually walk away with anything <laughs> implementable, then you've got an issue. But yeah. yeah, Google Hangouts, because of the platform, immediately conveyed this is not the thing you're used to. And I think if, uh, podcasting is the same way, but you can you can do, you know, I mean, that's why we've seen kind of a shift into promoting things as a training, an online training, a masterclass, a video masterclass. Like everybody's trying to come up with a different name because stuff like webinars is so, t it's it's like it's like a demo from a SaaS company. It's like, I know what mm. the purpose is and it's not to make me better equipped to go off and do it alone. It's to get me to buy the product. Yeah. So yeah, I think that there's just certain things like that. When something gets tainted, you got to find something else or you can genuinely do something different. You know, and 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 get sales in a in a different way. That's a whole other conversation. But that one. the content, the content was really interesting because on these Google Hangouts, which then turned into podcasts, which is kind of how I stumbled into this. The reason I think that the Google Hangouts strategy initially worked, besides just Google Hangouts being lower permission and more casual and stuff, was we were going into content that only the most valuable slice of the market even cared about because we were talking about problems that you didn't even realize you have until you were at a certain level. Uh. So if you think about that, just, and real estate's a great microcosm because a lot of industries are like this. There's a million licensed agents, and I mean that literally, there's over a million. Maybe 25,000 of them make an actual good living selling real estate. There's not that many of them. So the market shrinks really quickly. If you have a professional service to sell them like coaching, that's a grand plus a month, man, your market is like, 15,000. Like it's really small. It gets really small, really fast. And so you don't realize just how much people try to speak to that entire market and you end up having to dilute yourself so much. But if you only deal with problems that that top, you know, 5% or even 1% of the market have, they're going to prick up their ears and go, holy cow, nobody's talking about this. So I'll give you an example. If you're a team leader in real estate, you're spending, whew, 10, 20, 50 grand a month on Facebook ads. Every lead is pressures and you you wake up every day going, oh my God, my team is not following up on these leads. Can I please, for the love of God, just get them to follow up on their leads? And so we would do episodes about like how to boost your online lead conversion from 1% to 1 to 3%. Now, if you, if you told an average agent on the street 
you know, like only three of the 100 leads you have right now are actually going to do something with you. They go, oh, that sounds terrible. I don't want to talk to 97 people for every three who do business with me. To a team leader, they're like, oh my God, I can boost my lead conversion from one to 3%. Like this is happy day. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> we were talking about things that were, it wasn't just that they were in depth. It was that they were problems that the mass audience wasn't even aware of. They literally didn't even have the problem. So they didn't know that there was a solution for it. So that's what I try to push my clients to do on the podcasting side too, because that still works is just speak to the most valuable slice of the market and talk about the stuff that only they care about and literally repel everyone else with the depth of what you're talking about. And you'll actually get the high level people paying attention. And then guess what? The high level people will go and recommend you to all the lower level people that weren't paying attention to that content. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a masterclass uh, in itself, if you will, on just like positioning and niching down. And I'm sure we'll, you know, touch on a lot of those, but I think that that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Why that would work is, Hey, you're speaking directly to this type of person who's only experiencing these problems. And so now let's go highlight the the content and sort of like the, the things, the actionable bits and pieces that people can take away. And of course they're going to be ecstatic about it. Of course they're going to be, think it's valuable. Of course they're going to share it uh, with other colleagues and friends and, and people around the, the internet. Getting back. So real estate uncensored, huge real estate kind of podcast. Did you think that it would sort of blow up like it did? And how do you, why do you think it was such a success? You know, however you want to define success. Did not expect it. Had no idea what to expect. I was just a podcast podcast fan from listening to Adam mm. Carolla since like 2010. I didn't know what to expect. All I knew was that I wanted to give it a shot because it looked interesting and fun. And it is. And I knew that if I was going to market, like do some sort of like marketing activity, I wanted to do something that was fun, that kind of gave something back to me along the way, even while it was on its way to working before the results kind of showed up. Now for me, and I think this is true for a lot of people, 18 months. So from the time we launched the podcast to the time when we were, you know, doing a packed out uh, session at a, at a real estate event across the country where we had thought we had no fan base. It was 18 months. Gary V said the same thing about wine library TV he said 18 months. So I think there's something about that. Like if you come out with the right idea and your marketing is right for the, for the niche and you're, you know, marketing consistently, you're visible in that space and yada, yada. I think 18 months is a good barometer of like, if you've got your idea right and you're consistently visible in that space, if you don't have traction in 18 months, something is wrong. And if you do have it right, you'll probably hit that point around 18 months where you'll start to get traction. I see that in podcasting. Hmm. I'm sure it's true in YouTube channels and other forms of content marketing. I think that's pretty, pretty good kind of uh, measuring stick, I guess. So that's how long it took for me. I had no idea what to expect. So I certainly didn't have any expectations. But now that I've seen that pattern, I think that's it, it might like my experience wasn't that unique. Yeah, that's a long time. I think for a lot of people to think, okay, I'm going to put this in for a year and a half of my life. And if you're doing a weekly podcast, you know, that's 75, you know, 80 episodes, right? Which is nothing to sniff at. That's quite mm -hmm. a lot of time and commitment and, and effort. And even just psychologically getting yourself through that amount of time. How did you get through 18 months without, you know, where the times you wanted to call it quits or you wanted to pivot or were there things that you changed or iter iterated on along the way? Well, there's definitely a lot of that, you know, because I was learning product creation, 
you know, digital programs, you know, info marketing, like all that stuff is all new to me, right? I knew how to market and sell professional services. And that's still what I'm good at. That's my best skill set. So I still don't consider myself any expert on actual pure info marketing. So I was learning that. So there was a lot of iterations, a lot of trying to come up with what the, what the secret was to monetize in the podcast. What's funny about it is the podcast that was easier to monetize was the one that had the most clear, direct, straight line from the podcast to a professional service that somebody could hand over a check for three or five grand and just get started. The mm-hmm. ones where you tried to put something, some barrier between that, like, but yeah, before you get to that, buy this thing digital program, info marketing, class, group, group code, like whatever. And when you're, when you're marketing to like the most valuable slice of the market, the highest end of the market, they want results and certainty. And if they can pay you to do it, they will period. Hmm. The rest of the market might want the intermediate steps, the $17 pocket product, the group coaching, the, all, the, all this uh, other stuff that people try to sell. The interesting thing, once you get into it is you realize that a lot of the gurus that are selling this stuff, that's their front end break even thing where they make their real money is on some professional service on the background, you know, uh, mm-hmm. done for you services, a mastermind events, you know, that, that kind of thing. I didn't know any of that going in. So I spent a lot of time fumbling around in the dark, trying to figure out how do I monetize my main podcast with things like info products and group coaching and stuff. And it turns out, I just don't think that was the best approach. Some people are just flat out better at info marketing than I am, and that's cool. But I'm really good. My skill set is professional services. So the more I stay within that sweet spot, the better I do. And I think everybody's uh, different on that. But the faster you kind of realize what your skill set is and what you naturally sell the best, stay stay within that sweet spot. Right. Yeah, it's the, the idea of your, your circle of competence and really playing to your strengths and you know there's the ikigai kind of venn diagram and a bunch of different ways to kind of describe that but then there was this other podcast the smaller podcast which you found like you said it's much easier to monetize it was maybe a higher roi if you just like looked at the the numbers which podcast was that and where did that pod where was that podcast born from so it was born from the second uh, coaching consulting group i was a partner in and so i co-hosted it with the founder that was called the team building podcast. Well, it still is the team building podcast. So I stopped co-hosting that a couple of years ago and let my partner just kind of basically take more of the lead on that because he didn't need me to co-host anymore. And the business behind that was a a group coaching and and live events business for that super high end, most valuable slice of the niche. So it was professional Mm -hmm. services. It was scaled up group coaching. It was super scalable, built a multi six figure business in two years. I think our, our email list we started with was like 2000 people and he was virtually unknown in the industry and was not active on social media. So like me getting him to do the Gary V approach of be everywhere and do all this stuff and take selfies and experiment with Snapchat, like none of that was going to work. <laughs> so I, I went out and I got him booked on podcasts and then we launched the podcast together. And that was the, that was the cycle that made him an industry influencer in just a couple of years. And we noticed something really interesting happened. So, so he was doing these live events, right? He bring people into a workshop. It was really valuable. He was charging two grand a pop for it. People would come in, they'd buy a ticket, they'd fly into Omaha, Nebraska to his office. But in order to do that, he had to have a lot of back and forth. So Facebook messages, texts, phone calls, right? Questions, answering all these questions. A year and a half into doing the podcast, he's getting people go to the website, plunk down three grand for a ticket, jacked up the price, right? So plunk three grand a ticket, no interaction, no messages. Half the time they didn't even call or email anyone. They went onto the website, put their credit card in, booked their own flight, and they literally showed up at his office for the event. He had no idea who they were. 
Oh man. So, so it was, it was and that's in a space where if you don't know this about the real estate space, it's very similar. You know, we were talking before we hit record about just the, the space of marketers. We're very jaded. Mm-hmm. We are yeah. bombarded constantly. Once you express any interest, your Facebook and Instagram feed is full of people selling you stuff on how to market better. So it's a very jaded space. Real estate's the same way. So to get people to display that level of trust, you know, they don't, they didn't need to be handheld. They didn't need to be reassured. They didn't need to, you didn't need to have a, like run through a sales team where they're pounding on people and getting them to put the, the live event ticket on a credit card. That's very typical in our, in the real estate space. You didn't have to do any of that. So it was a good, uh, real life demonstration of the power of influence, Hmm. right? Like real enduring influence. If you have it, it makes everything easier. If you don't have it, everything is sluggish, harder and more expensive. Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming this is where sort of the idea and framework for uh, microfamous came from was putting in the business partner through this process of going from sort of nobody to someone of influence, but without a lot of the Gary V be everywhere, sort of like just put out a lot of content on all the platforms, but being a lot more tactical. Am I, am I assuming too much or is that right? No, it's, it's right on. Like that was, that was the big first light bulb moment was the, was the split test between those two shows. Then I saw it happen. And as we launched podcasts for other clients, I watched what worked and what didn't work, who got amazing results versus who got, you know, good results, but not spectacular versus who didn't work at all. Because I guess what I realized is that, and I'm sure everybody feels like this about their favorite pet tactic after a while, you realize that there is no such thing as a tactic that is the be all end all. That's the magic yeah. silver bullet, right? So every tactic has to fit into kind of an ecosystem. And that's really what determines whether the tactic works. So like I was very fortunate to, you know, ride a couple of waves, you know, Google Hangouts, podcasting in my, in the real estate space, there was a, there was the trend of the teams that there was a growth market within a very stodgy old industry that you didn't think was changing at all, right? There's always, there's something. So I, there's been a few different waves that I've ridden and you realize that that stuff is more important than, you know, whether your podcast is 20 minutes long or 40 minutes long, or, you know, do I put my picture on the face, on the, on the artwork of my podcast? Like none of that, like, yes, it all matters, but not as much as are you, what's the business model behind the tactic you're using and what's the bigger social and cultural waves that are going on behind you? Are you in tune with those or are you against those? Are you swimming against the current or with the current? So mm. that, that, I guess that's what I was trying to do with Microfamous. The initial idea for writing the book was to try to explain all of this stuff to clients, formulate my own thinking so that I could communicate it clearly and so that hopefully I would get clients that didn't need this to be explained six months, a year, a year and a half into their contract with me. They knew it before they showed up so that when I told them, hey, this is the way we need to do your podcast, they went, that sounds great. Let's do it. Hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I, I would love to, to dive uh, deeper into and kind of go down all the rabbit holes and tangents on really the, the microfamous kind of framework and how you think about things. And maybe we can start here. Like what are, what's like the current way of doing things? Maybe like the tried, maybe not the tried and true, but like the other strategies being used to, to market, to get attention, to build an audience online. And how does that compare and contrast with the microfamous strategy? Well, I think we all know the main strategy being used. I would say that's the Gary V. So I call that more marketing, right? Post more content in more places more often. And basically, <laughs> when in doubt, do it more. If you want, <laughs> there was there was a really hilarious 
interplay between Gary Vee and one of his fans who was like a personal trainer who was, you know, posting all this content on Instagram. So, man, I'm just, I'm doing, I'm doing all the things, man, like, but nobody's buying, you know, I'm like, that is sadly, that's probably not a rare occurrence in Gary Vee's world, right? Yeah, there's, there's yeah. a lot of people like that because attention doesn't, it just doesn't convert into sales automatically. It's not, it's not automatic. There's other steps in between there, right? So that, that is the dominant, that, that is the message that we get. And the part of the reason that it's so, we're so bombarded by it is because that suits what, big social media companies want from us, right? Which is they, they want, I'll give you my opinion on this. I'd love to hear what you think, but so I think that the social media companies have shifted a lot in the last couple of years to where they've decided they want us kind of on our devices, creating content in real time and engaging in real time, which works great for the Gary V's of the world that kind of get energized by being social online. But if you're not that type of person, if you're a natural introvert, like I am, that is like, I mean, it just sounds exhausting. I can't spend two or three hours a day on Facebook and Instagram creating content and, and engaging mm-hmm. with people in real time. I'd never have a business, right? I wouldn't be able right. to serve my clients and run my company. And I have a company I run in four hours a week. Like I can't, I still can't do it. So um, <laughs> so anyway, so that that's my opinion on that is that because they've decided to shift in that direction, they're going to keep posting and they're going to keep promoting the Gary V's and Grant Cardone's of the world because what they tell everybody to do suits the social media companies and what they've decided they want, which is really mm-hmm. all, all with the aim of selling more ad inventory. So that's my, that's my controversial take on that. Now, that being said, there's that whole Gary V strategy on one side. Now let's look at someone that's like the opposite, which, which I would call Simon Sinek, right? Great idea, a super clear, really, really compelling idea. Start with why, with his first book, right? The Ted talk and the first yep. book, all based around one single idea expressed in three words, right? It was, it was catchy. It was compelling. It was the right idea for the right time. Simon Sinek is not doing TikTok videos. Simon Sinek is not on Snapchat, uh, unless it's for, for, for private reasons, you know, but he didn't get big <laughs> riding some big social media wave of trying that like the latest platform. So it's like, well, how did he get big? Well, he had a really great idea and that idea is what cut through the noise. So now the difference with Simon Sinek from let's say the rest of us or anyone that maybe wants to start a SaaS business or something like that is, we don't need millions upon millions of people. Like Simon Sinek came up with an idea that spoke on a very deep level to tens of millions of dissatisfied people in the corporate world. We don't need tens of millions. Like, you know, the example I gave earlier of the, the coaching consulting companies that I came out of, you can easily run a seven figure business that gives you a great life in an, in an area where your entire customer base is like 15,000 people max in any given year. And so you don't need millions. Well, that also frees you up from having to create a message that speaks to millions. Now you can create a message that only speaks to 10,000 people. You know, we talked about the whole thousand true fans thing. Like that's at least when you're, you're selling services or information nowadays, I think that's the way to do it is you're creating an, an idea and a message for your business that really only needs to speak really deeply to about 10,000 people. If you can do that, that gives you that home base. And from there, you can decide whether you want to jump into a bigger space. So that's my, mm-hmm. that's my two cents on that. Yeah. A quick comment on the, the social media platforms. I think you hit it right on the, the, the nail on the head of, you know, you just kind of follow the incentives and the incentives for social media platforms is for people to spend more time so that they can sort of show more ads and thus get more clicks. And that, I mean, that's the business model, right? Just like follow the incentives, look at where the money is being made. And I think I've seen that too, as well, just a lot of platforms reaching kind of like a critical mass of 
of user base. And once you have so many people, then like what metrics do you look at for who to show in the algorithm? Well, it's all about engagement and it's all about real time likes and comments and shares and like this momentum that you have to build. And so it puts you in a hard place of uh, really having to show up and to be active instead of kind of just like, you know, taking a step back, scheduling everything in advance and just kind of like stepping away. Right. <laughs> Which I, that is hundred percent what I do. Yeah. Right. What's right. funny about it. And I don't know why this is, but when they, when they optimize things and kind of the algorithm, how it's optimized, it's like they only optimized for extroverted traits. Hmm. So think about how many people are what you call lurkers online they're not not consuming content they're just not the personality type that's going to go comment on the content they just enjoyed and a lot of my clients are like that you know they're on there they're consuming content but they're not going to like they're they're running five different businesses or they're or they're super busy for whatever reason they're not going to take the time to comment and like and pat you on the back even if they genuinely enjoyed your content so what i thought was weird about just where social media is gone is like who decided on those particular signals like, what about what, you know, what if you're the type of reader that you really enjoy someone's long form written Facebook posts, but you don't like or comment, you just read it, enjoy it, consume it, mm-hmm. spend five minutes reading it on the platform, and then you move on to something else. Facebook doesn't care. You are irrelevant, right? right. And, and so it's skewing everything, everything to go in the extreme social butterfly direction, both on the creator and the consumer side, which is it, that mm-hmm. like, that's a choice they made. You know, and so I think it's just, it's forcing out anyone that isn't an extrovert online, essentially to the sidelines. I mean, you yeah, you can lurk, but God knows what Facebook is going to show you if you're, if you're not giving them the engagement they want to even figure out what you like, because they're not paying attention to certain things. So I don't know why that is, but I know the practical effect is that introverts have effectively been shut out now from really reaching anyone beyond, let's say 150 people on your average post on Facebook. I have 10,000 people that follow me on Facebook. I can put something up there and I'd be surprised if more than a hundred people saw it based on the yeah. interaction yeah. that you, that you get. Right. Saw you it know? and not even liked it or commented or, you know, engaged mm-hmm. with it in some way. I want to get yeah. back to the, the, the idea part, you know, talking about the Simon Sinek kind of framework and, and an example, but you mentioned something earlier, you know, about you, you rode the waves of Google Hangouts and then, you know, the team building in real estate and, and podcasting and you sort of like tapping into the momentum of the cultural zeitgeist, if you will, just like, this is yeah. something people are excited about, interesting. So how do you balance that with the minimalist marketing that's driven by quality instead of quantity? You know, like, do you have to yeah. just kind of like forge your own path and accept the, the downsides and the trade-offs and maybe not as much engagement or a much smaller audience, or is there a way to, to do both of those, to have your cake and, and eat it too? That is a great question. I think there's a way to have your cake and eat it too. And I'll give you an example. One of my clients, he is, I wouldn't say he's an introvert. He's kind of a, he, he's an outspoken guy, but he's also not the kind that just sits all day on social media. He's not doing the pure Gary Vee thing. Yeah. What he is, though, is he's an expert on a very specific subject matter. In this case, it's hormone optimization for men, right? Kind of controversial. Some doctors say, you know, you shouldn't even delve into that. Some doctors are all over it. He's become an expert in that. But because and it's part of so within the overall cultural zeitgeist, you've got a big wave against it, but a really small but really engaged wave in favor of it. Well, he is at the tip of that wave in favor of it. 
So his mm. audience is, even though it's on the smaller side, like he's got 15,000 or something YouTube subscribers or whatever, he gets great podcast downloads and more importantly, he gets great engagement on his post, even though he's not doing all the Gary Vee stuff of responding to every comment and, you know, engaging right after something posts and like all the stuff that Gary Vee talks about. But he still gets, he has the other side of the eating your cake, which is he still gets all the engagement. Why? Mm. Because he went down so deep. He could have talked about, he could have been like a competitor to Dave Asprey and talking about biohacking this whole time. He could be in the esoteric space. He could be in this space and that space. But because he zeroed in on that one space that had a really engaged, passionate core of people that it appealed to, his content gets that, that engagement too. Mm. So I think that's where you look is either either you go with the dominant overriding cultural wave that's going on and you can get a lot of, a lot of good stuff there. But if you can find a countercultural wave Right. Think about what's happening right now with, uh, I mean, just the movement against watching porn, for example. That is a that that is a small but growing countercultural movement. You know, you've got you're starting to find more TED talks about it. You you know, there's there's content about it online, and the people that are in that space are really passionate about it, right? Hmm. So something like that that is so countercultural, that audience is going to be more engaged anyway. So if you insert yourself into that movement, or you or you come out of it organically, which is even better you're going to get the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because it doesn't have to necessarily be a huge wave for it to be a wave, right? It can be sort of like this countercultural where it's really small, but people are really, really passionate about it. You can kind of just tap in and arrive that, I read that groundswell, if you will. This is the hardest part. So the the space that so you play in this space way more than I do. I'm in the professional service space. You're more of the the SaaS and you know venture capital and really interesting, really cool tech companies. But this is the problem with tech companies. And and by the way, if you haven't read Play Bigger by Chris Lockhead, that is like the bible of marketing for venture capital backed startups. It's mm-hmm. it's it's one of the best marketing books of the last 20 years. But that that's one of the the hardest part of like being in marketing and working for somebody else is you don't have control and it's hard it's it's a lot harder to work for a a startup or a company that's in that vent that that tech space because there's so much of that fast follower kind of mentality hey we're just going to make another one of these we'll be fine it's like no you won't be you know lockhead and his team for that book did all the research then the number one name the number one brand in any category takes 76 percent of the economics of that category and it only gets more extreme the more technologically savvy that niche is so if you're going to any niche that's that is now being infiltrated or democratized by tech that asymmetry is going to get bigger and bigger to where the number one brand in the space doesn't take 40 percent like GM compared to Ford, it takes 90% like Amazon versus virtually anyone else to sell stuff online, right? Like the, the right. asymmetry is bigger. So like it's, it's harder, like when you're working inside of a SaaS company or something like that, you don't have as much freedom to kind of tap into that cultural zeitgeist because companies are afraid to take a chance and step out and be at the head of like that countercultural wave. But anyway, like it, it, where, where that fits in this, none of this stuff that we're talking about, the countercultural stuff is in the Microfamous book. I think I need to make some, some updates because <laughs> this is all thinking since then. It's like just in the last year since the book came out, yeah. just noticing how that much, like a big part that plays. But if you have that Microfamous mentality where I don't need everybody, I just need the right people, it makes it a lot easier to find those waves that are up and coming and position mm-hmm. yourself to kind of like a surfer, like ride that wave. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to d- d- dive into that because I think that the, 
the what you call the clear and compelling idea. That's really the crux of how to make the micro famous strategy work. And could you talk a little bit more about like how do you develop a clear and compelling idea? Do you find it? Do you do you choose it? Is it something that should come out of you know, your area of expertise or just a product idea? Or like how does that how does someone find and develop the clear and compelling idea that can end up being a you know someone's start with why kind of semi cynic case study? Well, I guess let's define first what it is. Yeah. So clear and compelling idea is the core idea of your business or the product you're selling expressed in you know, as few words as possible, one to two sentences at the most, and constructed in such a way that when the right people, ideal clients and customers, when the when the right people hear that, those one to two sentences, their response should be, holy cow. Like, I didn't know that existed, right? There, there's a great example. There's a bunch of examples. You can even go back into Al Risa stuff from the 80s and find some amazing examples like, you know, BMW, the ultimate driving machine, right? This is classic stuff, right? Mm. That's what that's what gave BMW the ability to temporarily overtake Mercedes in luxury car sales. Like, so this is tried and true stuff in certain areas, but we forget it when we apply it to ourselves, our careers, small companies, whatever. You know, another good example, I'll give you Tony Robbins. So Tony Robbins' clear and compelling idea, and this is, I'll give you my opinion. Not everyone is going to agree on the wording of this. But Tony Robbins in the 80s got big because he had a very bold opinion, which is that anyone can transform not over long periods of time, right now, in an instant. Hmm. And he started to get on talk shows and stuff like that and local radio and local TV to talk about how he could help someone transform in an instant. And that was interesting Personal development has been around since the early 1900s. What was new about Tony Robbins was, no, no, NLP, new psychological stuff we've developed, new tools means you can transform right now, right now, and you can never be the same. That was new and interesting and compelling and distinct and unique and all that fun stuff. That was his clear and compelling idea. He's made a career out of it for over 30 years on the same idea this whole time. So that's what you're looking for. Now, where, that, where does that come from? It's, it is a, an emergent property that comes from two things. Number one, developing and refining your own point of view on the world, right? So your own belief system, your own values, your bold opinions, all that stuff in combination with interaction with that audience of the right people you want to serve. How do they respond, right? So unfortunately, it's not just a process where we can just go off into a monastery and get super introspective and come out with a clear and compelling idea, right? Because ultimately, it's about what the audience thinks about it. So that's the that's the tough thing about the clear and compelling idea, and that's the challenge for most people, is that the only way you know you've got it is when you're talking to the right people you want to sell to, and they come away with that going, holy cow, I've got to learn more about that. Hmm. And we've got yeah. and you just keep iterating and interacting with the audience until you find that. Hmm. Now, how would you say that someone should go about uh, testing or finding sort of like the, the big clear and compelling ideas. It's something that you, you come up with like a list of different sort of variations and options. And then, you know, you're swapping those out on your landing page or you're doing that in conversations with friends at a coffee shop, or maybe you're creating content around it. And those are like the big themes that you're trying to see, you know, which ones have uh, higher or better metrics on, like what are the ways that you can try to validate what your, clear, compelling idea is. So it's not just like a gut feeling of I have it. I don't have it. It's, it's, you can have confidence in it. Yeah. You don't want to just go off the gut feeling because your gut feeling will be misled by whatever sounds good 
and feels clear in your own brain. So that, that is, you want to avoid that. I would say, especially in the tech world, this is the temptation is to go off of what gets the most clicks, the most conversion, yada, yada. Unfortunately, that can actually be misleading because it might lead you to mainstream ideas, which mm. is really the exact opposite of what you're going for. If you want to be micro famous, you want countercultural ideas. So the mainstream ideas are the ones that get the easiest clicks. You know, if you want to build an Instagram following right now, just go repost all of Gary V stuff and you'll have 5,000 followers over the next six months or something <laughs> like it's not that hard that because mainstream ideas are popular, they're already accepted. So you have to be aware to not be misled by the numbers. So uh, now here, here's an example where the numbers did work out. Tim Ferriss in the four hour work week, right? Running Google ads to the right people in the right cities in the right age demographic. He targeted exactly who he knew he wanted to put that book in front of. And he said, okay, four hour work week or drug dealing for fun and profit, whatever that other title that he came up with was. And he watched the numbers. Great. If you can get super granular on who you put that in front of and you know it's the right people, by all means, watch the numbers. But ideally, when it comes to like at a company level, you want to get on the phone with your best clients. And then you want to get on the phone with your best prospects. And when they ask you what you do, or you tell them, hey, this is where we're thinking about pivoting to and kind of the statement of what our company does and why we exist. If they don't get that holy cow kind of response, you know, you haven't found it yet. Now, you may not know exactly what's wrong, but you know you're not there yet. I think there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of marketers that would like to operate so much by the numbers that they don't get on the phone with people and see what people's reaction is because people will tell you all kinds of things you want to hear in a lot of different forms, focus groups, ads. Facebook will send you people that opt into your landing page because Facebook knows they they opt into every landing page, right? There's a lot of ways that numbers can trick you. If you get on the phone with the right people, you can instantly tell by their, their tone their verbal body language and all that stuff. Are they genuinely taken back and surprised by what you just said, or did it roll off the duck's back and they're just being encouraging? And that, to me, that's the only way to really get that kind of feedback you need. Yeah. Yeah. There's also an interesting contrast between you mentioned before how you don't want to just like deviate to the mean or to the average basically, and like dilute your message to appeal to the most amount of people, which like you said, might get the most engagement because it, it is average. And so you have to have something that's sort of polarizing, but polarizing to the right people where it, mm-hmm. to some people it might be like very unattractive and it's very like sort of jarring or it just like doesn't land at all. And it's maybe even confusing, but to some people it's very compelling. It's very interesting. It's kind of that holy cow moment. Is that really the, like, is there, again, is, can you have your cake and eat it too, to like appeal to a large amount of people maybe with like a Simon Sinek <laughs> of like, start with why, or do you have to really be polarizing and counterculture and develop a message that's, that either really lands or it completely misses? Well, I think it's more of a patience game. I think you absolutely can have your cake and eat it too, but it's a patience game. Hmm. Tony Robbins is a great example. Tony Robbins, you know, while yes, he did ascend quickly, he had a lot of help. You know, he happened like in his particular case, he also, he wrote a couple of different waves, personal development and infomercials. The in like he hit it just mm, the perfect time for infomercials to take off. And Tony mm. Robbins was like the second person selling personal development stuff on infomercials. So he had a lot going for him. But what he, what he did really is he went after, like he came up with a countercultural idea that was kind of in the zeitgeist of that moment. It was an outgrowth of NLP. 
and he took that, but it was extremely controversial, like to the point where psychologists and psychiatrists would, would what, do you, what do you call it, stand off against him on, mm-hmm. on TV shows and kind of scoff and, and essentially like square off against him, right? Like, hey, yeah. can you cure this person? Like the, I can cure him in six months. Yeah, well, I can cure him in, in 30 seconds. Like he would do these standoffs in public. It was a very uh, alluring but initially unpopular idea, especially within the establishment. So he wasn't getting endorsements from psychiatrists and psychologists talking about how awesome Tony Robbins was mm. because they hated him, right? You don't need six months of therapy. You can be fixed right now. But what he did is that he then grew into the bigger niches of personal development. So from like therapy and personal transformation and stuff like that, he grew into bigger niches and then he added business. So he's doing like business mastery events. So he's working with entrepreneurs and CEOs. So he's like crossing from personal into business development, like, you know, kind of a lateral move to add, you know, a bigger audience to him. So like, look, like once you have that initial home base, you're not stuck there. Like your home base is your leadership position with that very first group of influential high-end people in your market that are the most trusted and influential people once you have them you can go mass market you can jump to another niche you can jump to a bigger niche like there's all these possibilities that i go through in the book but i think what we're trying to all do is run before we can crawl that's the biggest danger the biggest danger is that you you're so intent on getting big so fast that you you gravitate towards the mean, right? You gravitate towards the lowest common denominator message and you end up never breaking through in the first place. That's the real danger. Hmm. So let's just say that someone's first starting out, they think that they've really nailed the the clear and compelling idea. They have something that gets the holy cow reactions. Now, is it just like, you know, you have to have patience. It's just skyrocket growth. Like what are the different stages of influence before you get to the place where you want to get and you're running, you know, there's the crawl, walk, run. What does it look like to actually see this through of, okay, have my clear and compelling idea. And then like point B is I'm an influencer or quote unquote, or a domain expert or someone sought after on my opinion and expertise. Okay. So the mechanical side of it is you've got to have a marketing system that puts you and your message into the world consistently. You know, I have my own system that I built for myself as an introvert that might work for other folks. The Gary V system works for Gary V. Whatever it is, you've got to have a mechanism to get the message out there. But when you're getting the message out there, this is where people get really distracted by the Gary V message, which is get attention at all costs, eyeballs at any cost. What that ends up doing is it means that maybe one out of 20 posts are going to be some reference to your clear and compelling idea. The other 19 posts are about your hair, your dog, mm. what you ate last, or just whatever, maybe asking other people's opinions, which is great. And it gets a lot of engagement, but it's nothing for you in terms of putting your clear and compelling idea into the world. So there has to be a mechanical way to get that out. You have to have a marketing system to keep you visible. But more importantly, in the process of you being visible, it actually has to communicate the one reason why you exist and why people should hire you. Otherwise, what good is the attention? If you post 19 posts in the hope that somebody sees that 20th, what are the odds? It's not good. <laughs> yeah, and if, and if Facebook is really smart, which they are, if that 20th post where you're finally going, okay, I'm finally going to talk about what I do. All the other 19 posts are just to get attention and build followers. Now, now mm. I'm really going to post about what I do. And Facebook goes and slams you down on the algorithm on that post because they know it doesn't get engagement. You, you've won nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of you, you've got to have a way to get it out there. Now, the, the process looks like this. Seen, noticed, known. So you go from being seen where people just kind of, oh, that's Matt. 
But if I'm continually putting my idea out there consistently, then they go, oh, that's Matt. He's the microfamous guy. Like he, I think he maybe, maybe he sells podcasting or something like that, right? But if I keep doing that through my own marketing, through getting interviewed on other podcasts, you know, putting micro content in the world, all the stuff that, that works for me, right? Then I'm going to hit that tipping point. And that's when the rock that I've been pushing uphill this whole time tips over and starts to roll down the other side of the hill and pick up momentum. And that's hit, like, I call that the tipping point of influence because what's happening is now you're known. Mm. It's not just that people see you around and that you look vaguely familiar. It's not that you're noticed to where they kind of know who you are and maybe they know a little bit about what you do. No, like you are the micro famous guy. Tony Robbins is the personal development guy. John Maxwell is leadership. Zig Ziglar was sales. Bam. One word, hopefully. If you can be known for that, one word, one concept, one idea, that's when you know you've hit the tipping point and your audience may not be working with you right now, but if and when they buy what you sell, it's already a foregone conclusion. 80% of the time, they're going to buy it from you. That's what you want. That's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. To, to play devil's advocate a little bit and offer antithesis, if you will, what if someone has lots of interests and maybe they have multiple <laughs> things working in parallel and they can't be maybe boxed in to one idea or to one niche or to one type of audience? What do you, what do you tell those types of people? That is such a great question. I would say find one thing where there's enough meat on the bone where you'll be relatively happy if that was your main source of income and then mm. find a sandbox to play in where the other stuff you can dabble in, but it doesn't, it doesn't affect whether you pay the bills or not. Mm. That's my best piece of advice. It's really hard, man. Creative people, creative types, and you and I are both musicians. I know a bunch of musicians that are in marketing or, or they used to you know, be an artist or whatever. Yeah. Marketing attracts those kinds of people because it's a way, it's writing, it's design. It, like it's, it gives us a chance to like flex our creative chops. So a lot of people in marketing have a problem with exactly that. It's like, it's like we get the seven-year itch, except we get it about every seven minutes. We want to do something <laughs> different in a new project. So if you can find a sandbox where I'll give you an example. One of my clients has a membership site and the membership site has a very specific A to B journey that she's taking people on with the site. But mixed in with that, she has an upgrade level where you can buy lifetime access to all these templates. And she enjoys creating templates, marketing templates, email templates, landing page templates, all this stuff. Hmm. And that's what is fun for her. So in in her work with her members or in the work with her one-on-one -on -one clients behind the scenes, her highest interest is in creating templates. And so that membership, it has a defined A to B journey that's easy to sell to someone thinking about signing up for the membership. Great. But then it also gives her built in a sandbox to play in where virtually anything and everything she ever did in marketing, she could turn around and create a template out of it, throw it in her in her membership and it makes the upgrade level more valuable. If you can find something like that, to me, that's like the holy grail for anyone that, and she's exactly like that. Many, many interests, wants to always create new things. And so she basically built herself a sandbox within her main paid product that allows her to keep on creating, but it serves the, it still serves to push the overall business forward. So that's mm -hmm. the ideal. Yeah. Going back to the, the idea of like being an introvert in marketing and mm -hmm. uh, trying to do things that really fit your personality and what you like doing your own sort of creative outlets for introverts or people who are not like the Gary Vee types who are engaging in social media all the time. What are the specific channels and creative outlets and strategies 
that you see working for introverts that are like, this is a good fit. And these are the general, mm -hmm. you know, three to five things that I see working for the micro famous persona or type of person. Well, number one is podcasting for a very specific reason. Mm -hmm. It's not just because it's growing. It's because podcasting for the most part is based on conversations like what we're having here. And introverts are really good at having deep, you know, hey, skip the small talk. Let's get to the deep stuff. Like we enjoy yeah. long form, deep conversations. And podcasting is really the only place in marketing right now where you can do that. Uh, mm -hmm. Bonus that it works. You know, like it's, yeah, right. it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if it doesn't work, but people do <laughs> want the content if, it, if you're talking about the right things with the right people. So podcasting is one. I think YouTube can be good, although YouTube is tough because even just from a thumbnail level, you know, YouTube has regressed to the mean mm. where there's so much competition that in order to stand out with your thumbnails, you have to be wild and outrageous. And there's still some niches where that's not like that. But as soon as it gets that competitive, it's like if you're not an extrovert, it's tough to come up with the thumbnails that really grab people's attention. And it looks like you're faking. It looks like inauthentic to your personality. Mm. So YouTube can be great. And YouTube was very good to me early on, but it's not a big part of my, my own real estate stuff even now, even though it was really good for us once upon a time. So YouTube has gotten super competitive. So I think podcasting is the ideal uh, state for people right now. Now, if you're an introvert that loves to write, which I do enjoy writing. I don't do much on Medium or places like that, but if you enjoy writing, you know, Medium is great. Quora is great. You know, Dushka Zapata built an amazing following on Quora, which now supports her books. Chris Lockhead actually did a lot of stuff on Quora leading up to the release of his second book, and that did really well for him. So if you're a writer, like there's still, I mean, I guess the point of this is that there's all these little pockets podcasting is one whole ecosystem over here that you might not think about Quora and Reddit and all these other, like there's other ecosystems out there that aren't dependent on you being an extreme social butterfly for it to work. Go find those, you know, ask your clients where they hang out, test them out. You might find Clubhouse does really well for you. I could care less about Clubhouse. You couldn't pay me enough to be on there, but you might find you love it. And it's, it's like a, you know, like a pig in straw, but there is something, I guess the big point of uh, like anytime I talk to introverts or really anybody about this, like the point is that whatever, whatever you feel like is a weakness can be made into a strength, mm. like in the right ecosystem. You just got to go find it and believe in yourself enough to go, Hey, I, it's not that I need to change. I don't need to become Gary Vee. I just need to find the environment where my natural strengths flourish and I can reach the right people. And I think there's something like that out there for every marketer. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's say for someone who, um, They've defined their clear and compelling idea. They've maybe like reached the tipping point of influence and the boulders rolling down the hill and things are working. How do you still create sort of some flexibility for like a brand and an idea that evolves with us as human beings who maybe have other, right. other interests or maybe who, you know, you, you start down this path, but then it kind of like winds this way and you take a left turn and a right turn. And it, it's not different, but it just looks a little bit differently than it first started. So how do you, how do you do that in a way that it evolves and isn't like a jarring pivot? Yeah. It, it, hopefully this will be helpful for a lot of people. I don't know if you ever studied Napoleon, but he's, no fascinating, right? Greatest, greatest military general by, by most accounts. So he's a fascinating person to study. So the freedom of movement kind of concept comes from him. And he's one of those people that in the lead up to a campaign, he could look over all the maps and he would go, the final battle is going to be here. And he pointed to some random small town in the Austrian countryside. And they're like, first of all, no, 
Like that's, that's, that's nowhere near anywhere. What are you talking about? And sure enough, the final battle of the campaign would be fought there. Hmm. But what he told his troops was, we don't know what, what all is going to happen in, in between there. We know that that's the end goal. We know that that's where I feel like the, ba- the campaign is going to end. But in between there, there's going to be all these twists and turns. So we have to be flexible and we have to be able to kind of get to where we want to go quickly because we don't, all I know is where I think it's going to end up. I don't know any of the steps in between there. Let's get marching. We'll figure it out on the way. And that worked where everybody else was rigid and, you know, the equivalent today would be waterfall design and software. It's like, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to be able to envision every step along the way and exactly how long each step is going to take. It's like, that is not real life. That's not how it works. So I think in terms of building a brand that allows you to be flexible means you have to build it in such a way that it can be a container for the idea that you're expressing today while giving you the flexibility to where it has maybe more than one meaning. And if you needed to pivot or if you just wanted to expand, you can. Now, if your brand is your name, that's easy, right? If you're Tony Robbins, he can jump into whatever niche he wants because his brand is just his name. If you're a software company, a little bit more difficult, but it's not that hard. You can even change names if you want to. Al Reese would tell you maybe you start a new brand name. So you maintain it's more of an inner flexibility to go, hey, I'm not tied to anything so much that when Kodak isn't Kodak anymore, we can't change our name, Mm. right? And there's a lot of people that get locked into that. They'll make these commitments to a Facebook group of 300 people or a mailing list of 500 people. And then they'll go, no, I have to, like, I want to do this thing. I really need to pivot over here, but I've got these people that I committed to. It's like, they don't care that much. In (laughs) fact, you're probably the only one that cares at all. Mm. Move on. Do the pivot that you need to, but yeah, ideally, if you can, if you can come up with a brand name, Microfamous is like that. It's it's a com, it's one compound word. Pursuing results was like that when I first started the agency. The reason I called it that is because it was based on one of my mentors' suggestions of some website I put up. I had no idea what the what the final business was going to look like, so I picked a name mm-hmm. that was general enough to where I could I, I could be flexible. And so I think that's a, that's an easy way to get started is find a brand name that doesn't mean anything necessarily on its own or it means something that can have different shades of meaning and then you fill that brand with meaning by the clear and compelling idea that you express and that idea can change and morph over time as you get zero like zeroed in on your true audience that you want to serve yeah if we can take a step back for a second and get a little meta, because this is a marketing podcast. And so I'm also just selfishly curious a bit on like, what's what's the marketing strategy been like for the book, Microfamous? And even like walking me through the process of, you know, pre-launch, developing the book, involving your audience, like just what's it been like going through the process with the book and how you're approaching it? Okay. Well, bear in mind, my book came out in February of 2020. So as in all things, I have impeccable timing, right? (laughs) Yeah. Literally came out at the end of February and two weeks later, we went into lockdown or something in California. So, so my launch, uh, there was a couple of things that I wouldn't do the same. I wouldn't do the free plus shipping funnel. Hmm. Once I got into that and I started to like run ads to that, I started to talk to people that ran ads for, you know, people like Justin Brooke and people that do the free plus shipping funnel. They told me behind the scenes that the average cost it takes to get somebody to, to actually take that offer is 50 bucks. Wow. So 50 bucks to get somebody to take a free book for $7 shipping. So I'm like, okay, well, nope, cut, cut all that off. We're doing it differently. So I wouldn't do that over again. The thing that I felt like that worked the best was this. So I already had like, you know, just part of the microfamous system is to know kind of who your key relationships are. So I already had like a top 150. Mm-hmm. I reached out to the top of that list and said, hey, can I send you a chapter that I think would be 
especially meaningful for you. And if you like it, you know, give me a little blurb. Great. Sent out to a bunch of people. They got back to me. So I had a bunch of blurbs already ready to go. Then when the book launched on Amazon and we did the whole initial launch or whatever, I sent that review back to them and I said, Hey, can you take the blurb you already gave me and throw it up on Amazon? It's super helpful. Right. So right out of the gate, I had a good number of reviews that worked really well. The other thing that worked really well in terms of reaching out to those people and paving the way for them to agree to that was I recorded two different voice messages that sounded super custom depending on how close I was to the person. Right. So I recorded two different versions of the of the message. One was for people I knew really well, where it was a little bit more casual. One was for people that I didn't know as well. And I was able to take that message and forward it to people in Facebook Messenger. Right. So it basically to them, it sounded like they got a custom message. Mm. Right. So that, that was one of those things that helped like pave the way to where I was able to ask authentically and they responded really well. And so I was able to build out a really, really killer landing page for the book that had all these testimonials Mm. from big names in my space and stuff, because I had, I had built those relationships for years. And then I, I asked in a very authentic way that was very personal to them. So that was the most helpful thing I did. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Could you expand a little bit more on that key relationships list of 150? Like, who are those people? How did you cultivate those relationships? Why, why those people as well? Well, I cultivated through podcasting or by talking to people behind the scenes, making connections and introductions around the world of podcasting. Why them? Because they were the people that I felt could send me referrals and people that I respected, people that had audiences of their own. So it was a mix. But essentially, it was my, some people call them their A's, you know, ABCs, you know, just the, your A contacts, the people that if they called me, I'd attempt to drop what I was doing and pick up the phone. I'm an introvert, yeah. so I don't pick up the phone for just about anybody. But <laughs> that most of those people in the top 150, if I see them come up on the caller ID, if I'm not on a call, I'm picking up that phone. So that's kind of how I, how I defined it. Yeah, I love it. What's something on the horizon, maybe like a emerging technology or a tactic or trend that has you excited? Oh man, that has me excited. Excited, curious, Mm -hmm. you're paying attention to. Oh, I know what it is. The possibility that Facebook is going to open up some sort of portal or platform inside of the app to let people listen to podcasts on Facebook. That just Mm. scrolled across my screen here a few weeks ago. And that to me, that has the biggest potential to explode the audience of podcast listeners than anything else I've seen so far. I don't give a rip about any of the Apple premium mm. subscription stuff. None of my clients need to charge for their content. We're not create. We're not doing any of that stuff. That's that is the one thing that I think really has potential to change the game in podcasting. Hmm. You think because it'll uh, it'll basically expand the total addressable market for podcast listeners or yeah. because it's more discoverable or because of ease of access, like what's behind all, that? all three. Yeah. I think it will expand yeah. the audience. You know, there's people like my parents that would be like, my dad would be a podcast super consumer if it didn't have the stigma of being in a different app that he has to learn quote unquote. Right mm, now, right. um, it, you know, it's not really, we know it's no big deal to go into Apple podcasts and subscribe, but to someone that's never done it before, it feels like it's something. It's not nothing. It's something. If it's inside a Facebook mm-hmm. e- ecosystem, it has potential. And then, yeah, discoverability, you know, the ease of sharing. And then I think there's going to be a window yeah. of time where Facebook does this with everything, whatever new feature they roll out, they're going to push for a while and you'll get an artificial push 
just like Facebook Live yeah. did four years ago or whatever that was. So we rode that wave. We got that initial push and then we watched our numbers fall off a cliff for live viewers like everybody else did. <laughs> so I'm done with that. I'm done with, I don't care about Facebook Live anymore because Facebook doesn't care about it. But whatever new feature yeah. they roll out is going to get their push. Yeah. Yeah, there's always an interesting, speaking, going back to the to the waves idea, there's always an interesting like arbitrage opportunity mm -hmm. with whatever new like tech or whatever is being favored or whatever is just in the cultural zeitgeist you can either kind of jump jump on it and just know that eventually the, the wave is going to end and you'll have to jump off someday yeah. and like just let it be what it is or you just completely miss it and you go back and you do your other thing. And, I'm telling you what, I, I would prefer wave, to but. miss most of them. I take a Warren Buffett approach to marketing. I try to base 99% of my marketing is based on stuff that doesn't change, not the stuff that does. Hmm. And if you do that, you're automatically kind of running counter to the culture because most marketers are obsessed with what's changing and they're trying yeah. to ride the wave of what's changing, I would rather base my marketing on the stuff that doesn't change. What are those things for you that, that don't change? Is it like just old school tech or like certain platforms? How would you describe that? Well, I'll give you an example. So I've thought about, you know, what would happen in my agency? We produce podcasts. What would happen to my agency if Apple went away tomorrow? It's like, well, actually, my business would be fine because of the way we've structured it. Because my point of view is that I have no allegiance to podcasting. My allegiance is to what grows coaching consulting companies. Like, I fell in love with the client, not the uh, product. So I don't care. App, like, yes, would it, would it create ripple effects? Of course. But ultimately, the business that I can, the portion of the business that I control, which is whether my clients create content, do we send it out to their list? Do we publish it on social media? Does it go on their website where they can watch an embeddable video, even if I had to embed it with Vimeo? Like my business would be the same. Their download numbers on Apple would go down, but the actual business would stay the same. So that, that's just an example of like, I've, I've thought through all of this stuff of what happens if the hot, sexy thing goes away, what, what remains? Well, the fundamentals remain. You know, podcasting, just, just as a quick example, uh, the conversational format of interviewing successful people. You can go find cassette tapes from the 70s of Dan Kennedy doing that. Then it, then it moved yeah. to CDs. Then it was a CD of the month. Like the, they're, they're such proven timeless formats that have been around since the days of radio and cassettes and CDs that I just see podcasts as like the latest iteration of getting that into somebody's hands. So um, that, that's like my, my allegiance is not to podcasting as an art form. My allegiance is to this. This is just the latest delivery method for the same kinds of content that people have always wanted in business. So that that's that's what I base my my business on. I love that. I think that's so key because, like I said, as marketers, it's very easy to get caught up and you start playing favorites around. This is, you know, you really romanticize the medium and the platform and the thing that you do rather than the end, which is the result and how it helps people and the content you're really delivering at the end of the day. So it's a great reminder. Wrapping up or getting close to wrapping up here, a question I've been experimenting with is what's a recent purchase you've made that might be interesting to talk about? You know, we as marketers, we get marketed to also. And so anything top of mind that might be fun to talk about, you know, where it came from, why you bought it, how it's helped you? Yeah. So I've got it sitting on my desk. It's the Wacom like pen tablet. And, uh, and that's running into Sketchnotes, which is a free software by the same company that makes AutoCAD. So it's like just uh -huh. a very easy sketching kind of program. So what I'm using it for is to illustrate concepts. You know, like I'm starting to put them in my blog posts. I'm starting to put these sketches in my emails. And it, it just helps people visualize something that's kind of very abstract. 
you know, psychology, you know, just marketing is so much psychology and what's going on in people's heads and all these abstract concepts. It helps to put things mm-hmm. down into like a visual form and it's, it makes communicating the information a lot easier and, and better for the audience. But for me, I, I was not a sketcher or a doodler on paper. This has given me like an avenue to sketch really easily. It helps you draw. So you can, you can turn on some assistance features and you can, you know, your circles will be a little bit more circular and your squares will be a little bit more squarier. Uh, so there, you know, there's some things to help beginners and make it, make the process of learning to sketch less frustrating. So that's been a lot yeah. of fun. I've been experimenting with that for like a month. Oh, I love it. How'd you find it? Uh, or how, maybe how'd they find you? Well, I've known about the, t- the pen tablets for a while. It was, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was looking at Andre chaperone stuff because they use hand-drawn sketches. And I don't know who draws them. I don't think it's Andre, but I I love Andre Chaperone stuff. I love his entire approach. I think that probably Mm -hmm. answers one of your other questions about like who some of my recommendations or influences are. He's one of them. But man, like I loved the book Rework. So I had illustrations done for my book, but I had to get them drawn by a professional because I couldn't do them at that point. I loved David Baker's book, The Business of Expertise, which has his hand-drawn sketches. Like this has been in my background. I've seen this stuff and and I know how helpful it can be. So I've always looked for a way to do it. I think it was finding the sketchbook software and watching some YouTube tutorials on it that finally tipped me over the edge and said, okay, I'm going to give it a shot and just see if I can do this. Interesting. And then this device was like the best way to sort of use the software yeah. and actually draw it. And like you said, be, be become an illustrator. Yeah. If I had an um, iPad, in a similar vein, just do it with the Apple pen. Right. Right. Yeah. In a similar vein, I'd love to take a peek into your swipe file as mm-hmm. it were into some marketing examples, campaigns, landing pages that you thought were worth saving. Any that top, come top of mind or like, these are like the prime examples of, you know, basically what does Matt Johnson think is great marketing or things that, you know, he saved? Yes. So if you know who Amanda Bond is, she's a Facebook ads uh, agency owner. So I think so. Yeah. I, got, I got served up an ad by her here a, a couple months ago and I got into it. It was just very, it was three lines and a link to a blog post. I'm like, okay, well, this looks interesting. Like what's, you know, the way that the headline was worded was great. It leads to what ended up being a five post series of articles. Now I'm a reader, so this won't work for everybody, but she knows her market and I'm, I'm part of that market. I'm, I'm the type of person that would pay. I had a Facebook ad specialist working for me for a while. Uh, so I'm, I'm in her target market, but it was Unbeknownst to me, she was heavily influenced by Andre Chaperone. So it was following his mm-hmm. pre-sell page strategy. So once I got uh, into that, I'm like, man, I need to go back into Andre's stuff. So I started reading that again. I'm like, okay, well, now I know where she's coming from. And I started to revamp some of my own stuff on my own website about that. But that's the last time somebody really caught me like off guard with something that I took. And the only complaint I had about that one is that the only option at the end of that series of blog posts was to get on a strategy call for her Facebook ads agency. I'm like, well, I'm not doing that. Like I, I'm not mm-hmm. like, I'm not at the point where I want to drop five grand on ad strategy. So I, if, if she would have given me the opportunity to get into her email list, I would have taken it in a heartbeat and she mm-hmm. could have converted me six months from now. So, but that, that's who I, that, that can like Andre Chaperone, Sean D'Souza, Chris Lockhead, Al Reese, those are, and then of course, like Dan Kennedy, Jay Abraham, anything they've ever done is worth swiping and copying. But I, I do like yeah. that super authentic, like super one-to-one. Dean Jackson's another good example. Like I'll go out of my way to read Andre Chaperone's emails, Dean Jackson's emails. There's only a few, and th- those those are some of them. I love it. Final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? 
Well, I think it's like Seth Godin says. Everything that you do involves some element of persuading somebody to do something they wouldn't otherwise do, and can you do it in an ethical way that makes you and them feel good about it? And that's the challenge for all of us, because usually there's some element of that that's missing. Either we can't persuade them, or we can't persuade them to where we feel good out of good about it, so we end up feeling spammy, or we end up convincing them in the way that that maybe we feel good about, but they feel used, and so they walk away not being ideal clients and referral sources because they feel like they got you know churned and churned and burned. So everything everything is marketing because everything is persuasion and influence and psychology. And it doesn't matter what you want to do, you know, looking back on my background, you know, one of, one of the churches that, that my dad started didn't grow because my dad sucks at marketing, you know, and that's a, that's a, you know, you think that's on a purely spiritual plane. It's not, it's because he didn't have the right micro famous strategy. Right. So like that, that's everything is marketing. Even if you're like a lot of my examples and a lot of the way I think about marketing is actually pulled from the religious world because the people that do it well, the people that actually create converts and disciples and build a a following, they understand marketing instinctively better than most marketers do. So, I mean, to me, just marketing is like the lens that I look at life through. Yeah. Well, couldn't have said it any better. Matt, thanks so much for coming on and sharing everything today. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Matt for coming on the show. Be sure to check out Microfamous, Matt's new book. I'm currently reading it and enjoying it. As a reminder, if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him. I've already prepared a snippet for you. All you have to do is fill, his, fill in his name and his handle and click send. And to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. Firstly, you only need to be famous to the right people. I grew up in an age where you were either famous or not. You either had millions of followers or basically none. Now you can become micro-famous where you've captured just enough attention to make a living from it. Secondly, marketing for introverts is about doing things that don't drain your energy. You can do things that give you energy, scale, and don't require you to be the life of the party. You just have to find out what those things are for you. Third and finally, I found it fascinating that there was just an inverse relationship between the size and revenue for Matt's two podcasts. The smaller podcast was much more profitable, and this goes to show that it's all about gaining the right people's attention. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swipefiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.